Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. The economy has fundamentally changed and workers have been left behind. To get into why and how and what we can do about it, I've invited Sarah Horowitz. Sarah is the founder and executive director of the Freelancers Union and author of the new book, Mutualism, Building the Next Economy from the Ground Up. I've long said America wasn't built by Wall Street. It was built by the middle class, and unions built the middle class. Mutualism is everywhere. We see it in nature. Uh, we see it in our unions, cooperatives, the mutual aid groups that have formed all over the globe, and the faith communities that people are in, we're in, in our areas. I must tell those who failed to report for duty that this morning, they are in violation of the law, and if they do not report for work within 48 hours, they have forfeited their jobs and will be terminated. As lockdowns and layoffs sweep the country, leaving millions at risk, mutual aid groups are forming to protect and provide for the vulnerable, including the elderly, incarcerated, undocumented, and unhoused. My name is Sarah Horowitz. And I'm the founder of the Freelancers Union. I've been organizing workers for most of my life. I just wrote a book called Building the Next Economy from the Ground Up because I know that our economy has to change in fundamental ways. And we have to focus on the mutualists, the unions, the cooperatives, the mutual aid groups, and the faith community to be the anchor, not just for the economy, but for our democracy. Sorry. Not sorry. So, Sarah, talk to me about what the economy looked like in the 1970s versus what it looks like today. You know, one of the biggest changes is since the late 1960s, we just stopped building our own civic institutions. And what do I mean by that? Unions, cooperatives, mutual aid. And these are the kinds of things that really help people know their neighbors feel connected, but most importantly, help redistribute income so that we have just a better and fairer economy. Let's try to unpack for a second what happened to unions. Let me just say this. When I was little, I used to go to my grandmother's house and she lived in union housing on the Lower East Side. And it was where all these garment workers who had started off poor ended up with a really good and humble apartment that was affordable. And she was in the building with her friends and they would take their beach chairs and sit outside at the end of the day. They just knew each other. They were rooted and grounded. 
And in the 1920s, the labor movement was about building that for workers, not just wages or earning a good income, but in addition, housing, healthcare, art, literature. Union movement got to be really powerful through the 1940s. But in the 1940s, we started to really attack unions. And so we have to go back to that because the law was called Taft-Hartley. And one of the most important things it did was it separated out some of the most skilled workers from low-skilled workers. So it meant that the working class, instead of being united and powerful like it is in Sweden and the Nordic countries in Europe, we just started leading to it becoming weaker and weaker in that way. Then, of course, we all know Ronald Reagan really had the pivotal moment with the air traffic controllers where he crushed the union. And so we can look at that whole arc and see, where are we now? But I would say one of the most important things about the progressive left is that we have to see that the working class best ally is each other. So higher skilled workers in the technology industry, like the Google workers who just organized, have to be completely connected and supported of the most low-wage workers. And we could talk about this too, but we at the Freelancers Union passed one of the most important laws that has protected freelance workers, and we did it through just that coalition. I'm so confused as to how and why we allowed this to happen. I mean, I've been a part of a union since I was eight years old, Actors' Equity. I've seen through SAG and AFTRA, as the industry became more about blockbusters and making a lot of money and trying to not have to pay actors for residuals or streamers or DVDs, to see our union really be stripped of its power by the producers and by networks has been so incredible to watch. And if you think about it, like I got into the union in the 80s and it is a shell of, I mean, the healthcare is completely different. Everything is completely different from then to now. So like at what point did union members just allow this to happen? Again, let's go back to the root. FDR decided that the best way correctly to get out of that depression was to enable workers to unionize. And so he gave unions a special place and a special job. He said, we're going to relax what were called antitrust laws, meaning they could set wages and how much in collective bargaining with an employer you would earn. And then he said, nobody else can do what a union does. A for-profit can't do what a union does. And so it was that the role of government was to build unions. And what we really saw with Reagan was it was to destroy unions. And what we have to do is go right back and say, wait a minute, President Biden, the only way you are going to be able to be successful in building a safety net and deal with climate change and racial equality is through government, but not to isolated individuals, to unions, to cooperatives, to faith communities and mutual aid groups. Let's go back to the building block of democracy, because I think that's what we're all scared of. What's happening to our economy and our government? But you do that through these groups. And I think that's the most important thing that we have to change our worldview. We are not isolated individuals. We need each other, but through our groups. And that, to me, is the building block of all of this. And community 
which I think that unions play such a big part of, but also just subsidizing what we're not getting from the government. The unions used to supply for us. So it just feels like you cannot look at the economic disparity that we're going through right now and not take the downfall of unions into consideration. I think what we should be thinking about is let's just close our eyes and think about how we want to have a day. What does a good day look like for us? And part of it is that we want to be able to drop our kids off at maybe a cooperative childcare center that makes it affordable, where we know the parents and the kids and our neighbors, and that maybe we can go to a food co-op so that we can buy affordable food, that in our work, we have unions that help us so that we could say, you know, I need to retrain or learn a different skill, so I'm going to go to my union. The unions put power in the hands of workers. They level the playing field. They give you a stronger voice for your health, your safety, higher wages, protections from racial discrimination and sexual harassment. Unions lift up workers, both union and non-union, and especially black and brown workers. And so that suddenly you're surrounded. You then have enough political power in your community to say, what about some more parks in our area? These are the things we need. And what people have to get back to is that sense of agency that we can do all those things, but it's not going to be on Twitter. It's not going to be alone. It's because we're going to join with other people and build our own organizations. And we call that mutualism. Let's talk about the workforce and how it's changed. I mean, what's different about the jobs that people are doing now from what they were doing, say, in the mid to late 20th century? I'd say the biggest change is the time frame. Nobody has the job that's going to go for 25 years, which is what people started to think after World War II. That was like a norm. And you could build a solid and stable life. But work has gotten so short term that everybody has to figure out, how am I going to be managing all those risks? And so when you think about that, you have the rise of the independent workforce, which will be majority in a few years, yet unemployment insurance doesn't go for somebody working a short-term job. When you think about health insurance, yes, the ACA was helpful, especially for very low-wage workers, but for working-class and middle-class workers, if they didn't work for an employer that provided benefits, they didn't have anything. So we have to really change our ideas about what is security because work really is going to be shorter term, and we can deal with that. Life changes. People used to be on the family farm, and then they went to work in factories. Now they're working in so many different places. The answer isn't to challenge that, but to build the security for everybody. There's a lot of work that needs to get done in our country. We have a lot of bridges that need to get built, a lot of light rail. Let's just start to think about that but build in security for workers. And it's better for all of us when we do that. It makes for our country to be the country we recognize. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. 
No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The gig economy. Tell me what life is like for the average freelancer. How much money do they make? What kind of insurance and security do they have? Let's just unpack what we mean by a gig worker. So when I started the Freelancers Union, freelancers all across the country, if not the world, started to come together. And many of them were solid, working, middle-class freelancers who really loved being independent because it enabled them to put together their life, let them decide about childcare, taking care of their elderly parents. And so they, as a group, don't want to go back. A lot of this works for them, but what they really hate is not having healthcare or retirement or any security in that. And that once they have any kind of problem, like a big health issue or a bankruptcy, they're done. They're really hard hit. But that group are real freelancers. And then you have a lot of workers who work for platform companies like Uber and Lyft and others. And that's really the gig economy that people are talking about. A lot of those workers may very well be employees and they feel very much like they're not enjoying the benefits of these companies. When there were companies like the auto industry after World War II, there were strong unions. It wasn't like there were nicer people that were in charge. It's that unions had power. And now we have just the most rapacious bunch of corporate leaders, but they're no different. It's that they don't have opposition that has power. And that's what we have to really get back to realizing and start to build it in. And it really goes back to this idea of let's give unions and others the job of delivering the safety net. Because A, it'll make us get a better safety net, but B, it'll build the power of the countervailing power of companies. And that's what government has to get in that game. It has to get more active in that way. But it's a different kind of government. It's not the government that just does it for us. It's the government that builds the mutualist sector. And of course, then we add COVID onto all of this, which has exacerbated all of our weaknesses. What effect has COVID had on freelancers? Devastating. COVID has laid bare the issues that we all knew were the vulnerabilities, and it took those vulnerabilities and just made it manifest. You got 140 million people poor and low wealth. You got six, uh, 62 million people working without a living wage. You got all these people uninsured and, and, and underinsured. And now this pandemic comes, and what you could kind of hide before, you can't hide now. What I saw was not just were people scrambling to get housing that they could afford. There was real food insecurity. But COVID did something else. It taught us something about taking care of one another. People immediately started building mutual aid groups all over the country. And they were based on reciprocity, on teaching us that it's really important to knock on your neighbor's door safely in a social distance and find out or use technology to find out, do they need medicine? Do they need food? What do they need? What do I need? How do we share? And I think it is making us come back 
to our roots. These are American roots. This is our actual tradition of creating organization. It's what de Tocqueville talked about. So there's some pride in being an American, which means that we take care of one another. And I think that it's resurrecting an older culture, a culture of building, asking, how can I be helpful? How can I be constructive? We're so oriented to being critical and getting on social media and tearing one another apart. It destroys us psychically. Actually, mutualism makes us rebuild. It starts with the root of love. It starts with the root of kindness, of trying to think of what somebody else needs. That's the power of every social movement is that actually. And that's the personal soulful benefit of COVID. But let's talk about just the business aspect. Do you think that more companies are going to realize that they can function with remote employees and smaller or maybe no offices at all? Like, how do you think COVID's going to impact the world of business and freelancing? I think that the trends that we all saw before are just really going to be accelerated. The distinction between the sort of remote and in-person work is just going to be a question of how much. I don't see that everybody will necessarily just go back if there's a way for technology to enable them not to. But again, it really goes to the theme we just keep hitting upon over and over again. Let's find out what workers want and what they need. What costs are they bearing in order to do all this remote work and start to have that conversation? That is really the role of government, no, is to start to say, what is it that we need? But again, I do feel like we have to not go back to the 1930s and say, let's just do it like we did back then. Let's say there's going to be something different. People really do like flexibility because they want to put together their day. People are very contemplative and spiritual, and they really do want a different kind of life. People don't just want to live to work. It really is a barbaric way of being. So let's dial this back and start to say what it is we need and how we want to come together and to put real emphasis in our lives on those relationships. So you've mentioned the word mutualism. Can you define mutualism for me? What is it? So mutualism is something that you see every day in your life. It's the organizations that you are a part of. Every church, mosque, synagogue, every place that you go to meditate. It's the idea of people coming together. And it has three principles. The first one is that mutualist organizations are ones where people come together in a community to solve their own problem. The second is that it has its own economic system that's not for profit in any kind of short-term way. It's like a union that has dues, a cooperative that has dues. Some have subscriptions, but they all have a way to pay for themselves. And the third is that they have a long-term vision so that it's generation to generation. So smart ideas can be passed on. Wisdom can be passed on. New people coming in can learn from elders. And it's those three together make up mutualism. And if people want to learn more, they can look at buildmutualism.net. Let's unpack what it would be like if mutualism was widespread. So we could look at our country's history. And in fact, Ben Franklin had the first mutual, which was a fire insurance company that was a mutual to help when there was a fire because no one person could solve 
that problem. Most known for the Constitution, electricity, and the bifocals, hmm. Ben Franklin had a weird obsession with fire safety. On a trip to Massachusetts, Franklin noticed that the good people of Boston were much more fire savvy than his fellow citizens in Philadelphia. Hmm. This got Ben thinking, and he came uh -huh. up with the idea to create a club or society of active men belonging to each fire engine, whose business is to attend all fires with it whenever they happen. A lot of people who were slaves or right after slavery created benevolent associations because there was no place to put their money to bank. These ideas go back from the beginning. So what our economy would start to look like is in your daily life, you would go to these kinds of organizations because you'd naturally be a part of them and you'd have people who knew you where you would get the most important things that you need. So for instance, your health care, help on your retirement at your credit union. You could get training if you needed to learn a new skill or something that was important and you needed that. So what you would start to see is that you weren't all alone. Right now, you have to go to every website to figure out how you're putting together your own safety net, let alone paying for it. And what it would also mean is that we'd have powerful constituency groups made up of us that then could go against corporate interests to say, not so fast. We also have our own money for lobbying and other kinds of things. We are not here. We are not charities. We're not waiting for foundations to fund us. This is because we're paying dues. It's the collective money that will back the things that really mediate the worst part of capitalism. As I hear you speak, I'm wondering your thoughts on like GoFundMe campaigns and if that's just a modern version of what you're talking about. I would say GoFundMe is the first level for individuals, but it's not a collective solution. What I think we are seeing is all sorts of technology to enable us to come together, like Google Groups, like Substack, Patreon. What we're recognizing is that we need to come together and then support the goal that we have also with money. And I think that's what people have forgotten. We're so used to living in this world where like everything's free and then there'll be advertising and that'll pay for it. And it doesn't work. You know what works is when you open your own wallet to support something. And it's not that it has to be expensive. It's that it makes it independent. That's what our grandparents did. They all were in their own kind of ethnic association, their own kind of neighborhood group, their social club. And they kind of had nice lives in a lot of ways because they were so deeply and richly connected to one another. And we are very alone. And you see that in the data. People are anxiety ridden. They're lonely. The amount of addiction for opioids, it is screaming out to us that we are alone, but it's not just on a personal level, it's a collective level. So is this an argument for no government? Some conservatives agree that we need to rebuild civic institutions. They really do believe that. But this isn't an argument for no government. It's an argument for a different kind of government. And it's a government that looks actively for these organizations and says, we, as the government, are going to build them up like FDR did for the unions. That's why we have to be agile in our thinking, because this isn't a simple just have government do it. 
if government replaces these, as it has since the late 1960s, workers suffer, citizens suffer, the poor suffer. We do the best when we galvanize these groups. And every single social movement that we've had from civil rights to the New Deal has rested upon the mutualist sector to collect people and build the constituency that had the political power to make it happen. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. As you know, the word socialism is thrown out as an attack on basically any idea that deviates even slightly from the way American capitalism is currently employed. And it's been a pretty effective messaging tool that we have not been able to overcome. So how would you respond to people who call mutualism socialism? Mutualism just simply isn't socialism, nor is it capitalism. It's not socialism because it doesn't call for the government to do everything, nor is it capitalism because it doesn't believe that you can achieve things with the profit motive that is endemic to our system. Mutualism is where people run their own organizations locally. That means that they don't have experts who went to Harvard and Yale telling them what to do they form the organization in their own communities and their own cities. There's much of it that conservatives can like and much of it that leftists can like. It's actually a way to bridge and to find commonality, which is what we desperately need. I don't think we should run away from the ideas of socialism, nor should we run away from the ideas of capitalism. What we should do is actually get precise about what we're talking about. And precisely what I'm talking about is going to mutualism, which already has like a trillion dollars running through it with experts. There are cooperatives and unions and union benefit funds. There are people who run banks and insurance companies. In fact, the electrical workers run their own electrical grid in Queens, New York. We have a lot of expertise for the Green New Deal. We just have to find them because we're kind of lost. You know, these are hidden in plain sight. Mutualism is around us. And the smartest thing is always start with what's working and build from there. And that is working. Unions work. Cooperatives work. Mutual aid groups work. And the faith community works. Let's build upon that. And what would you think would be the first steps to shifting toward a mutualist economy? The first step is with ourselves. Let's first take a deep breath and take stock and realize that we have power. We have our own power. We are good at things. We know how to love. And we have to start to connect to our neighbors and start to say, what do you need? Form a block association. Take your Facebook group and get off Facebook onto a place where you can each put a couple dollars in 
and decide a really important thing you want to do with that money. Then you need to start to have an analysis of what is mutualism and look at your community and see where it is. Then you need to start asking your elected officials about their mutualist track record. On the right, did you get rid of unions? And on the left, did you vote for something that got rid of some mutualists when you should have supported them instead of getting rid of them? Let's get to be educated mutualists because then the ideas will flow locally and from communities. There'll be an explosion of what I call biodiverse scale. Instead of a big box store as our economic development strategy, we will enable people in areas that are depressed to start to exchange time, to start to build what each other needs, to go to each other's home and help them build something so they come to your house and deliver food. Let's start getting back to that. And slowly, slowly, it starts with our community level, and then we build it up exponentially throughout the economy. Mutual aid differs from charity by focusing on the direct action of members who are involved in decision-making, volunteering while providing solidarity and humanity to those in need. Aid can range from providing childcare, food, PPE, transportation, financial assistance, and even emotional support. Charity work is often more selective in who they target for assistance and can be incentivized by tax reimbursement. You just mentioned biodiverse scale. What does that mean? So biodiverse scale is not taking the capitalist worldview that you need uniformity so that every time you walk into a place, it looks exactly like the brand and it's antiseptic. If you ever walk into a YWCA, which is a great mutualist that many people know, or a faith building, a church, a mosque, a synagogue, you take a deep breath because it's built for human beings. And that's what you want to do is go back and take a space and say, this is going to be our space. It's going to look like this. A government leader in a local area could take some of a government building and give it to these groups so that they can cross-pollinate. So that what you see is you have a million of them across the country. You don't have five that are the same across the country. So success isn't because you have a McDonald's in every neighborhood. Success is that you have a local food co-op or a cooperative restaurant that is just got that je ne sais quoi of that city. It's that thing that makes everybody know, I'm from here, I'm connected to this. We want more of that. We don't want that uniformity. It's interesting because when I was pregnant with my first child and I was looking for schools, I went into a lot of preschools that you would look on the wall and They were teaching kids how to create art by using all of the same tools. So if you were building a house, they would give kids a red triangle and a brown square to paste on the piece of paper. So everything was all uniform. And I looked at my husband, I was like, this is so weird. And I would say 95% of the schools that we looked at were teaching kids artistic expression by a uniform technique. And the school that we wound up putting them in, you know, we walked in and there were different types of artwork all over the place. And it was diverse. And it was so refreshing to see like, oh, okay, so this school is not teaching that way. And obviously, the other schools were focusing on STEM and teaching STEM through art. 
And it was just such a a stark realization of the way in which we're choosing to nurture creativity and problem solving and artistic expression versus thinking of things mathematically or in symmetry. And it really bummed me out. And it's still like that. Let me just say, that is exactly like the argument for mutualism. Because when you look at Italy after World War II, they created one of the most innovative educational programs for kids. It's called the Emilia Model. And it was really because they built out a whole system of cooperatives so they could say they wanted children who could follow their ideas and explore and try things. And that's so not the culture we're in right now. Students are so scared of getting a job that they're so based in STEM. And I see how much they don't know history. So when they engage in a lot of this discourse right now, sometimes I think it's because they don't have the agility. They weren't taught to be like irreverent. Chew on crazy ideas. Don't be frightened about disagreement. Reach what interests you. So I think that is part of what this is really all about. You want your kids to explore. You want to explore. And we just shouldn't lose that. No. And we also want them to be able to express themselves in a way that is most comfortable for them. And a lot of that is about art. And It's interesting because a lot of what you're saying, I think, is so much about, and I don't know if I'm just thinking of it this way because of the unions I've been a part of, but to me, it feels like art is community, that art is the collective, that we're able to enjoy it in museums, in different historical eras and times, and that collective education about artistic expression feels like it would lead to mutualism in a way. And I'm wondering if so much of, you know, the National Endowment of the Arts is the thing that they go to cut every single budget. doesn't matter if there's a Democrat or a Republican in office. And I'm wondering if because we've gotten away from that so much, if that has contributed to this very capitalist mentality and gotten us away from the collective and this mutualism that you're talking about. If we took a deep breath ourselves and closed our eyes and said, what did we want to do in a day, a week, a year in our life? It wouldn't just be fighting to earn a living. And that's what Reagan has turned us into. And we need to see the connection between what our lives are like and what the economic system is. My father joined the military in the middle of a conflict to get out of that neighborhood and to be able to get out and put himself through college, which he did. He didn't stop there. He then put his little brother through college. And then he put his cousin through college. And as a result, he was able to get out of poverty, get his whole family out of poverty. Then he became a junior high school principal, and he got many, many, many other kids out of poverty. There was a ladder that he was able to climb out of poverty. And uh, there is something happening in our country now where the rungs on that ladder are starting to break. My mother-in-law just passed away, and she was an art educator in New York City. And what was so beautiful about her life and what people talked about at her shiva was that she was in New York City public schools. She was at Henry Street Settlement, which was a settlement center for immigrants doing art because back in her day, there really was funding for the arts for kids. 
And that's what we've done. Poor kids, working class kids, there's just not this sense of dream and think and create. And that's why you need to build an economic system that has power and let them be in their own organizations, in their local communities, so that they can learn what it means to them. And let's embrace that difference. There's nothing wrong with the difference. It's the difference and then the connection. And that is the beautiful thing that we want to go for in this country, not the difference that makes us want to be so apart. Or the thing that makes us fear difference. So do you think that we'll get there? Yeah, I do. You do? Yeah. No, you know, it's funny how different eras lead to different things. So like when our economy was growing like crazy, we could have big factories and big cars and big houses. Our economy can't grow like that for climate change. There's just no way. We have all these depressed places and we're not going to have the tax revenue to make up for it. We're going to do it but we're gonna need government that's gonna clear the way and help us grow. So I do have no doubt. And I know that people when left to their own best devices ultimately do the right thing. This I'm sure of, it is gonna be mutualism. It isn't just gonna be socialism or capitalism and it's really gonna be mutualism or fascism to be quite blunt. And that's really what the choice is gonna be. And finally, the last question, which I ask all of my guests, what gives you hope? I've been meditating for many a a year now, and I would say that we as humans have a honing device for love. And we have disappointment, we have successes, we have happiness, we have sadness. This is what a life is. So to me, it's that human beings will march on and will march toward love, and that is the hope for us all. That's beautiful. Well, Sarah, you give me hope. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Thank you so much. The change we need won't start with government. It won't be foundation funded. It won't happen on Twitter. You won't vote it into office. You won't nominate it to be the candidate of a major party. People you once considered to be political allies may not understand it. MSNBC and Fox News will not know how to talk about it. Your friends may not get it. The political realignment is producing strange bedfellows. Freelance software designers in San Francisco may realize they have more in common with factory workers in Western Pennsylvania than they do with the men and women who run Apple, Facebook, or Amazon. Uber drivers in Queens may realize they're not so different from freelance writers in Los Angeles. Farmers in the reddest heartland states may realize they share an economic model with some of the bluest grocery stores in Brooklyn. American capitalism is broken. Now, I'm not saying it can't work, but I'm saying it isn't working. The unjust, regressive tax cuts and pro-business, anti-work policies of the last Half century combined with a workforce that is changing faster than any time in history have left everyone but the wealthiest behind. The government should be seeing to the welfare of the people. It should ensure that wealth is distributed to the workers in the form of fair wages, benefits, a secure retirement, and clearly the money is there to do it. It's just languishing in the deep, deep 
deep, deep, deep pockets of a very few people. But in the meantime, workers need to take care of themselves. Working together mutually for the common good is an important part of how we can reset the economy and put the power and the wealth of our nation back in the hands of the people and not just the few. The American dream needs to be more than a dream. It needs to, once again, be attainable for everyone. And it won't be until we build a new, accessible, and equitable economy that focuses on workers and can adapt to a changing world. Look out, billionaires. We are taking our wealth back. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. 